Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I'm the pastor of Elevation Church, and this is our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so we can get you these new sermons every week. I hope you're blessed today. take it for granted when I get to stand in this pulpit, because every week our pastor stands up here and he preaches God's word in a way that would, would set our lives free. And as he mentioned, I'm one of the old G's. It means old guys. I've been around since the beginning. You might know this, but I feel like one of my responsibilities every time I stand in the pulpit is to be the storyteller, to be the old guy reminding you where you came from. Some of you don't know your spiritual legacy. Elevation started more than 17 years ago. Our first Sunday, February 5th, 2006, we had 121 people. Now we got more watch parties than that around the world. Look what God has done. Unbelievable. But it, it really didn't start February 5th. It started actually a year before that in 2005 when eight families committed to do this thing called Elevation Church. I want to show you a photo of your early family heritage. This on the screen here. This is, this is way back in the day, Elevation Church. This is what we call the Blue Room Days from back in Shelby, North Carolina. Let me give you a little context around this photo. Eight families at this point are committed to sell their houses, quit their jobs, move to an unnamed city in part of an un unnamed part of the country to be part of an unnamed church. Who doesn't want to sign up for that? Then it sound amazing. And we're all sitting in that room wondering, like, what is it going to be? And what's going to be the name? And what's going to be the city? And can you put that photo back up? Because... Pastor Stephen is the, on the bottom right corner with the shaved head. That's Pastor Stephen Holly next to him, Chunks and Amy. And then that guy in the upper corner, that's not Kevin James. That's me. That's, uh, and, and that was March 13th of 2005. And we're all sitting there. What's it going to be? Here's the notes that Pastor Stephen gave us that night. And I wanted to speak these over our church today to revisit a spirit that was spoken more than 18 years ago because the timeless message that Pastor Stephen has spoken into us does not outdate just because we flipped the calendar. This would be on the screen. Things we must do. He has them on the screen. That night, March 13th, 2005, he said, here are eight things we must do. Again, we didn't have a name, had no money, but we had a lot of vision. I wonder as I read these, what applies to you today? Number one, we must get people to catch the vision rather than watching the show. I think that's a good word right there. We must call on God walkie-talkie style. Step by step. We must play our three chords loud to know what makes us distinctive and not lose that. Some of you have tried to imitate somebody else's sound and God wanted you to hear today. No, no. He gave you a specific note. Go back to who he made you to be. We must step forward like God is behind us. We must protect the vision like it's a newborn baby. We must love each other. We must think marathon, not sprint. That's why we're here 18 years later, serving in all these communities. Because Pastor Stephen was the voice that says, guys, we got to think about the long term, not just the short term. And then we must feel the burden. I am so glad that we've got a pastor that 18 years ago was saying, no, no, no. I, I know there's a lot of things we don't know, but here's what we must do. Thank you, Pastor Stephen, for faithfully serving God, for faithfully preaching his word. We love you. We honor you. What a privilege to preach today. 
Hey, remain standing for just another moment. I want to read God's verse for what we want to dive into today. This is going to be out of Luke chapter one. I've been in this scripture for about six months and it's really wrecking me and I'm excited to deliver it to you today. This is in verse 62 of Luke chapter one. It says, they made signs to his father to find out, sorry about that, what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. You see, they asked him, what do you want to name this child? And I would do well to remind some of you that God has given you naming rights. Some of you have settled for a label that a past mistake has identified you as. And God says, that's not you. I've given you naming rights. You have the ability to rewrite some things today. And I think that's what God wants to do in our lives today. He wants to relabel some things today. Some of you have settled for a label that somebody else gave you that is beneath who Jesus died for you to be. You've got naming rights. He goes on to say his name is John immediately. His mouth was open and his tongue was set free. And he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking all about these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Here's the title for the few minutes we have together. What's it gonna be? Say it out loud, say, what's it gonna be? Type it in the comments, what's it gonna be? You guys can be seated, thank you, worship team. This is a story about a couple that gets the opportunity to name a child. It's a pretty cool privilege. My wife, Janet, and I, we celebrate 23 years of marriage this year. Yes, we do, baby. And we've got four kids and ages uh, 17 down to nine. And our youngest, her name is Linya. And this is a picture of her when she was born. This is her baby photo. And we remember looking at that baby photo going, what's I know that's what was the effect I was going for. The awe. Any, any, any parents here of some newborns? You can tell because your eyes are wide open and you're not getting any sleep. And that, that's Linya. And now here she is as a nine-year-old. And uh, that's, that's our littlest one. And when you meet a child, you walk up to them and you say, what do you want to be? What do you want to be? She wants to be a YouTuber. <laughs> she has no idea what that means, but she wants to have nine YouTube channels. And she wants to go to Berry College. She's got it all mapped out. And when you see a kid, you're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? But two adults, they meet each other like, what do you? Where did we go from becoming something for God's glory to doing something for him? I think we've lost a little bit of that wonderment that God wants us to have. Maybe you would do well the next time you're in a business meeting to look at your business partner and say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I think it speaks to the assignment that maybe God has placed on our hearts today to remember some of the things that he spoke into us that maybe time has talked us out of. In this story, it's about the birth of a child, but to really understand the story, you gotta rewind a little bit. I wanna hop back to chapter one of Luke, starting in verse five, and I wanna give you that story. Because some people see the end of a story, you don't appreciate unless you saw where it began. It's really easy for like, oh, it must be nice being Elevation Church with all, like, let me take you back to the photo where there was no money, there was no name because God is faithful in those little moments. And when you stay faithful in those things, you see him do much with it. In, in, in chapter one, verse five, it says, in the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, wife was Elizabeth, and who was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's 
commands and decrees blamelessly. So you have this couple that the husband is a preacher man. He's a priest. He's got it going down. And Elizabeth, she comes from a royal bloodline. Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. He's Moses' brother. So these people come from the right side of the tracks. They're like the all-American. They're the all-Jewish couple. Like he's the homecoming king and she's the homecoming queen and he's the captain of the football team. And they got it all going on. They got the right pedigree. And then verse six, it says, they were both blameless in the sight of God. It doesn't mean they were above without sin. It means they were above reproach. It means they were living their life in such a way that the ordinances and the commands that God had given, they were following them. They were observing, not just they were coming from the right place, but they were doing the right things. What an example for those of us that claim the cause of Christ to run after, to, to we want to be the kind of person who observes the decrees and the commands of the Lord, blamelessly. And you would expect verse seven to start with, and they all lived happily ever after. But you see, the Bible is not a fairy tale. It's the story of a great God that we were separated from because of sin. But God is long-suffering, willing that none should perish, and it set the stage for a Savior to come on the scene of the world who, in the form of Jesus, to redeem us from our sins. But it's also the story of a broken humanity and the depravity of the human nature and the result of sin and what it happens. This is a book of great faith. I think sometimes we open up God's Word wanting a fairy tale. And verse 7 shows me that this is not a fairy tale because it says, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Sometimes the scripture shouts and says, here's the answer. And sometimes it whispers, but it's never silent. I think the whisper in verse seven is the subtle sound of disappointment. You see, they had this deep desire to be parents, but but they were childless. So but often speaks to a desire that's delayed or it feels like it's been denied. It's, it's, it's this place of disappointment. And, and it says they were very old. And when you read the original language, it means they were very old. <laughs> it's like, you know, you've got hungry and then there's very hungry. You know, you're angry and then there's very angry. There's old and then there's very old. Zechariah is 90 and Elizabeth is 88. And the text is showing you a story that not only was Elizabeth not able to conceive, but they're past the age of biological reproduction in a reasonable person's eyes. And it sets the stage and but becomes a foreshadowing of God's favor. It's a beautiful, but there's profound disappointment in this verse. Picture them because in the culture, they would have been married as teenagers. So picture Elizabeth being 16 and Zechariah being 18 and they get married. Like, all right, we're married. We're both come from good bloodlines. We're both doing it right. We're serving God. Surely we'll have a baby by the time we're 20. And now Zachariah looks at Elizabeth at age 25 and says, I cannot talk to your mama one more time. Because if she says, when are you going to give me a grandbaby? I'm going to slap her. <laughs> Just keeping it real. And then 30 comes and goes. And the whispers of the people in the community are like, what's wrong with them? Why can't they get pregnant? And now they're begging God, God, have you forgotten us? God, we're serving you. Did we do something wrong? But no, they were not being punished. And some of you feel like the situation you're walking through is a punishment for something you did. It's not. They were not being punished in this moment. 
But now they come to age 40 and Elizabeth is like, hey, why don't you go find somebody else to marry so that you can have a child? Because evidently I think it's me. And they said, no, no, we're going to keep serving God. We're going to do this thing together. But now they're 50. They expected to be holding a baby, but now they're just holding bitterness. Then by the time they get to age 60, they forgot about the desire to become parents. And they used to be praying earnestly, seeking the presence of God. Give us a child, give us a child. But now, 60, they've stopped praying those prayers. So by the time we pick up the story here, it's been about 30 years, I think, since they've even thought about praying for a child. They forgot about that deep desire. I wonder how many desires have been buried in the graveyard of disappointment. We treat God's desires like a loaf of bread. We put an expiration date on it. And when it doesn't happen in our time, we disregard it and we get rid of it. And I think God wants to pick some of those things back up today. What's your but? But. Some of you at Christmas time prayed like, Lord, help my marriage get better. And if it doesn't, by summer, I'm out. And now it's summertime. And you're not left physically, but emotionally and spiritually, you have left the marriage. But, but I thought it was going to get better. But I didn't expect it to happen like this. How many business owners said, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it God's way, but you can't meet payroll. But you see everybody else cutting corners and it seems like they're getting ahead. And this young, young, young lady finished her senior year of college and she started her senior year saying, if I don't get a ring by spring. <laughs> and now you're getting wedding invitations from everybody. Ashley sends you. Ashley, she has had more boyfriends. My gosh, and she's getting married. Now, Melissa, Melissa is crazy. <laughs> and you settle on trying to do it right. And you were holding out for Mr. Right, but now you're settled for Mr. Right now. And a part of yourself, you said you'd keep sacred till marriage. You're willing to compromise because you feel like it'll make you more loved and it'll help get that ring on your finger. And the deep desire of your heart fades into the background and you feel like it's for everybody else. What's your butt? What's, what, what's, what's, what is it? What's your butt? When I showed you that picture of our daughter, Lenya, I need to tell you the full story of it. I need to take you back to Mother's Day 2013. This is a photo of my family, Mother's Day 2013. It's my wife, Janet, and our three kids, and we're pregnant in that photo. We're about 12 weeks pregnant. And my wife wakes up that day, and she starts having symptoms. And yet she still comes to church, and yet we still get on the stage, and yet she still holds the microphone, and we're still faithfully serving God. And a couple days later, we end up having a miscarriage. And like, but God, like, are you kidding me? We're serving you. We're standing on stage. We're doing it right. We helped sacrifice for this church. We sold our house, and this is happening to us. And it took us to such a hard place. But God, what happened? And it was at the end of the year, we find ourselves pregnant again. And we had a pastor come in. Pastor Levi Lusco came to preach at Elevation Church. And we're sitting in the sermon, and I hadn't told anybody we're pregnant. I couldn't pray for that child. And Pastor Levi is preaching a sermon about his daughter that had died a year before. She was like four or five. And in the sermon, I hear the Holy Spirit saying, pray for your daughter. Open your mouth and start praising me for what I did rather than letting disappointment bury the desire. And, and he said, you're going to name her Lenya because Lenya was the name of Pastor Levi's daughter that passed away. 
So you see, when you hear this story about Elizabeth and Zechariah, this old couple, we just skip right through verse seven. What's your button? The story continues in verse eight. It says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time of burning incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Our production team is gonna bring out some stage props that'll help illustrate the rest of the sermon. And as they do, would you help me thank all of our volunteers at all of our locations? And all those volunteers that, that take care of your crazy kids and park your cars when you don't wanna be in the parking lot. But thank you, and I especially wanna shout out our Elevation Asheville location. Thank you for five years faithfully serving God. We love you and we honor you and we're so grateful for you. So in the passage, Elizabeth and Zechariah are part of a priestly division. And in nation Israel at this point, there's 18,000 priests. They're divided up into 24 different groups or divisions. Each one of these divisions would have two weeks of the year where they would make the trek. Part of their duty was to go to Jerusalem and help at the temple because the central part of the Jewish life at that point was the temple. The temple is what set everything up. And the temple had three basic parts. It had this part out here, the courtyard. It had this part here called the, the holy place. And it had a lampstand and it had an altar for incense and it had a table for bread and and then the behind here is called the, the Holy of Holies. This is once a year, the high priest would go with blood where he would meet with God to offer sacrifices for nation Israel. Part of the duty of the, high, of the priests was families. If there was sin in their life or sin in their home, they would make the trek to Jerusalem. Elizabeth and Zechariah would walk about 15 miles one way just to get to Jerusalem. They'd been making this trek five times a year for 70 years. They've been faithfully serving God. This is their duty. And they're faithfully doing it each and every year, five times a year. The first few years, they're seeing families walk up with all their kids. I wonder how many years went by before they stopped seeing that because they just didn't want to see kids anymore because the deepest desire of their heart was to have a kid. But they kept being faithful with their duty. And part of the duty of nation Israel is if there was sin in your home, you would make the trek to Jerusalem, to the temple to offer sacrifices for sin because there must always be blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. In the Old Testament, that was through the blood of goats and rams and lambs. And in the New Testament, that's why Jesus' blood sacrificed all of, for all of humanity, satisfied the penalty of sin. But although we're reading in the New, the New Testament, we're still in the Old Covenant. So what the priests would do is a family would make their way to Jerusalem and Zechariah would, would, would meet with the husband and the head of the household and he would offer a sacrifice. And the head of the household would have to put his hand on the head of the animal as the high priest would grab the knife and he would slit the throat and the blood would leave the body because the family needed to feel the weight of sin and to realize that there's always a penalty to be paid for it. That was part of the duty of the priests and what they would do five times a year. And then they would make, take some of the blood back into the, the, the holy place back here. And the holy place has got three parts. It's got the, the, the uh, lampstand. It's 90 pounds of solid gold that's hammered out to look like a tree. 
So part of the duty of the priest is to come back and light the lamp to burn incense. And then there's a table of showbread. The showbread has got 12 loaves. This inner space is to remind you that God is light. Your prayers come into his presence and he is the provider. That's what this holy place represents. So as Zechariah was on duty, he's making his way back. And the first thing you must do is to attend to the lamp. It's 90 pounds of gold hammered to look like a tree. It's to remind you of the tree of life. Because every time they would see it, it would take them back to the Garden of Eden. And it would remind them of what God intended it to be. He intended it to be this way. So his duty was to attend to this. He's been doing it for 70 some years. Do you know what Eden means? It means delight. Do you think it was a delight for Elizabeth and Zachariah for 70 years to make their way to Jerusalem five times a year to serve everybody else, but feeling their own desires unfulfilled? Do you think that was always a delight? No, no, no. See, you, you see, delight is not a feeling. It is a decision. It says of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Do you think it was an emotional high for Jesus to go on the cross? No. What was it? It was a duty, but it was a delight. You're not getting that. It looks like a duty to everybody else, but it is a delight. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What happens is we delight in our dreams, and we'll eventually walk away from our duty. Pastor Stephen preached a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to keep digging until he does it. Part two, I'm going to keep delighting until he does it. I'm just going to keep delighting in the Lord for 70 years until he does it. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I'm going to keep delighting. And delighting looks like duty to everybody else. And I want to tell you that it sometimes feels more like duty than it does delight. And I would want to ask you the question, what has he put in your hands? What has he given you? What has he entrusted to you? Are you delighting in what he's placed in your hands or because it doesn't look like what you expected, you walk away from it? Here's what I think real faith is, to keep delighting in the Lord when the desire of my heart is unmet. Let me give you a husband hack on Father's Day. Husbands, when you come home at the end of the day and you're exhausted and you're tired, you just can't wait to sit down and like turn on the TV. And you finally sit down and your wife's like, hey, can you go to the store, honey? You're like, oh, God. I'd be delighted. Because <laughs> I understand it's a duty. Are you letting unmet desires keep you from being faithful with the duty he's placed in your hand? So when you see the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, it is one of faithfulness, faithfully fulfilling their duty five times a year for 70 years. And now finally on this day, Zachariah gets picked. 
He's going to be the one randomly to go into the holy place to offer some of the sacrifices to God. And it's just random that you clicked on this stream today. And it's just random that you walked into one of our locations today. No, it is divine appointment. I believe God has ordered your steps in such a way that he brought you to this place. Because there's something he needs you to hear. But disappointment is keeping you from embracing the duty. And the story goes on in verse 11. And it says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Now picture Zechariah, 90-year-old Zechariah, not a 16-year-old spry boy, but a 90-year-old very old man. Because at the time he goes into the holy place, this is a place that's covered with drapes and it's dark inside. And the very first thing he had to do was to go light the lamp. If you walk into a dark room, what's the first thing you do? Some of you are stumbling around in the dark trying to find your dreams. God says, I need you to do this first. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Seek first. Though desires are not bad, but there must be an order to it. And it says, as he went inside to do that, all of the worshipers were assembled outside. Now context, all of you had just offered sacrifices. You had come because there was a sin. There was something that needed to be offered or sacrificed for the remission of sin. And he would go, a priest would go in there two times a day. This occasion is on the Sabbath, the busiest day of the week. So they're like, oh, my Sabbath is when I rest. No, Sabbath is when you worship. That's not work. That's worship to show up. And they're all out there praying. And I think there's two kinds of prayers. There's individual prayers. And there's corporate prayers. The individual prayers would have been like, Lord, please receive the sacrifice we just offered you. May you forgive us. May you redeem us. May you look past our transgressions. They would have been praying for marriages to be healed. They would have been praying for children to be healed. They would have been praying for all those things individually, all the individual stuff that you're praying for. But maybe because you didn't see it happen, you started to withhold your petition. I wonder if disappointment has disconnected your vocal cords. And now you're not offering prayer to God anymore because you, you didn't see it happen in your timeline. It didn't, it didn't happen in thought. But there'd also be corporate prayers going on because nation Israel was very familiar with oppression. They were under Egyptian slavery for over 400 years. They were in Babylonian captivity for hundreds of years. And then now they're under Roman oppression and they had knew the prophecies that a savior would come, a redeemer would come, someone would come one day. So all those prayers are being lifted up in the courtyard. And I wonder if we're complaining more about the culture than we are praying. I wonder what the sound of the courtyard of the Christian looks like. I wonder what it sounds like. Have we lost the prayer of the righteous are powerful and effective? What does it sound like in the courtyard of your life as you're petitioning God? If the depth of my prayer is only me getting something, I'm in the shallow end of the faith pool. And I'm insulting God with the size of my prayer because I'm only wanting to get something from him. Would I consider interceding for the body of Christ? 
what I consider interceding for this generation. All those things are going on. And just at the time, all those prayers are being lifted up. Zachariah's like, now it's my day. He gets picked. He's 90 years old to go back in and, and light the lamp. And as he does, he would go over and he would sprinkle some of the blood of the animals on the altar. But as he does, he sees the angel of the Lord standing there. And he's like, what? You freak out too. And then he says, the angel says to him, your prayer has been heard. Oh my soul. And I bet Zachariah had to like, what, what is he talking about? Is it the prayer for the forgiveness of the families? Like, is it the prayer for a savior? What is, what is the prayer? What is it? Because I don't think he's prayed for a son in three decades. And then he says to him, your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm very old. And my wife is very, very old. And her womb doesn't work. And, and he's like, what, what, what are you talking about? My, the prayer he didn't remember, God never forgot. Those tears you shed, sister those private prayers that you cried into your pillow. God heard them. He hasn't forgotten them. He's not forgotten you. It might take 70 years, but God is faithful and he will show up. And I love that he's showing up on the scene of this story. It's like, and you will be a father and she will bear you a son and he will be a joy and a delight. Remember when you're changing that diaper, that's a delight. That, that would do well for some of you because the dream you had doesn't match up with the experience you have and you don't see it as a delight. It's a duty. But it is a delight because he's been praying 70 years for a child and he finally is going to get it. And I love this story and it goes on. And in verse 18, it picks it up. And I think the angel's kind of looking at Zechariah. All right, Zechariah, what's it gonna be? What's it gonna be, man? Are you ready? You've been praying for this? Here we go. And it says this in verse 18, it says, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Then the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Verse 20, and now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I picture the angel of the Lord standing here and he's asking Zachariah, all right, what's it gonna be? What's it gonna be? And then he hears this response and he's like, Shut, shut up, <laughs> sip it. It might sound like God is punishing. He's protecting. God is more committed to your desire than you are. And I will not let your disbelief destroy what I'm trying to birth into your life. Some of us have killed in utero a dream and a desire because of the disbelief we spoke over it. Some of you, if you examine the, the, your language, 
You have lived in disappointment so long. All that's coming out now is poison and it is disbelief. Disbelief can be more corrosive to the Christian life than the devil. We give him way too much credit. What we destroy internally, sometimes is way more than he will do externally. And some of you have lived with disappointment and has become your best friend and you have made it your partner. But now that disappointment has gone to the level, now it's disbelief. And I love it because I think in this verse, it gives us a better definition of what disappointment is. Right at the end of verse 20, it says, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. God has appointed a time for that desire to be fulfilled. But when it doesn't happen on my appointed time, I've got disappointment. I wonder how many of us' schedules are not syncing with God's and ours is superseding his. And because it didn't happen on my timeline, and he wasn't disbelieving God because he hated God. He just didn't want to be disappointed again. The reason I couldn't pray for our child when we were pregnant at that time is I just didn't want to be disappointed anymore. So rather than be disappointed, I will lower my expectations. And some of us have lowered our expectations through the level of our experience because we never want to be disappointed again. And some of you have stopped expecting anything out of life. And I speak the word of God over you. He's coming into your life and he's saying, I heard that desire. I didn't forget it. Did you? And now he says, shut up. Some of you need to pray the spirit of shut up over your life. I don't elbow your husband. I saw that. Lord, give my husband that spirit. Some, if you want something to die, you need to starve it. If you want that disappointment and that disbelief to die, Go on a 21-day opinion fast. Some of you are so addicted to your opinion, it just freely flows over everybody. Even unsolicited. I think you should, and I think you should. And it's coming from a place that you think is wisdom, but it is not. It is disbelief. I'm just keeping it real. No, you suck. <laughs> and you are destroying what God is trying to build. And you now become the thermostat for your children. And it becomes generational conditioning as they carry your... Oh, I'm preaching to myself right now. Amen. Because Zachariah's deepest prayer was to have a child at an individual level, but there was also a corporate prayer for a Messiah, a Savior. Both were happening in the same place. And what would happen with his son named John is he was supposed to be the one who would point people to Jesus. He would be the one to say, one coming after me, I'm not fit to tie his sandals. It is John the Baptist. You mean that God could answer Zachariah's prayer and the prayer of nation Israel together? Yes. You are settling for too shallow on the desire of your heart because God not only wants to do something in you, he wants to do something through you into the world. God met Zechariah's deep desire and the petitions of nation Israel at the same time. God says, I'm going to see your desire and I'm going to one-up it because I am that kind of God who can do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. And that's the kind of God that we serve. And that's what he was doing. 
and it is beautiful. But John's whole life was to point people to Jesus. And at the same time, the angel Gabriel is also going to be working in a 16-year-old virgin named Mary. In the very same story, the angel's about to do another miraculous birth. You realize at the same time God's doing something in somebody in your row? You realize at the same time God's doing something on somebody else in your city? He's doing something on somebody else in your campus? And if we would take a step back and see the bigger picture of what God is weaving together for his glory, it is absolutely beautiful. And God shows up in the life of this 16-year-old virgin. And if before the experience I were to stand up here, a 90-year-old man, a priest, who's observing all the decrees and commands blamelessly, and a 16-year-old virgin girl, which one would you say has more wisdom? All of us would have started over here, because that's the human knowledge we bring to it, but God is of a different economy. And I want to give you one verse. I don't have time to unpack the whole thing, but I want to show you Mary, because in the same chapter, chapter 1 of Luke, verse 38, the angel now comes and says, Mary, you are greatly favored. You are highly favored and you will give birth to a child, to a child and he will be the Messiah and he will be great. And I love Mary's response. It says this in, in verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Oh my goodness, it is beautiful. What's it going to be? Are you going to be like Zachariah? I don't know. How can this be? Or are you going to be like Mary? Let it be to me according to your word. What's is it going to be? What's it going to be? Are you going to rely on your own human wisdom that says that time is past, that desire is buried, or are you going to have an innocent faith? What can I be for God's glory? Let it be to me. And I believe the Holy Spirit is stepping into your life, whispering about those desires that you have buried in the graveyard of disappointment. And I believe God is calling some of you to go back and to reconsider and to pick those things up. And the angel said to Zechariah, you will not speak again until this happens. That's nine plus months of silence. Elizabeth is probably saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What would it look like for some of you to learn to be silent rather than the poison of the past and the disappointment that's now become disbelief be just spewed on everybody? What if you were to settle into the spirit of silence that says, I don't understand it, but let it be to me according to your word. So now as we get to the end of Luke 57, this is where we started. I think, I think Zachariah is getting another opportunity. He's getting a second chance here. And in verse 57, it says, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. What a beautiful occasion. She's almost 90 years old at this point her friends would have been holding their great, great, great grandchild. And she's holding her firstborn. 
It might take a few generations, but it will happen in your life. I don't know when. I speak over you that it will happen at its appointed time. Not your appointed time. At his appointed time. Her, relative, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. I don't think they shared it at the same level she did. Think about the woman who the whispers of the community were one that her, barren, her womb was barren and she wasn't a good enough wife. And if in that culture you didn't have a child, you were lower than cattle. So she walked through life feeling unworthy by everybody. And yet she remained faithful with the duty that God had given her. Child of God, I know the grief is significant, but you can be faithful with what he's put in your hands. You absolutely can. I don't think they fully shared in the joy that she had. And when it happens in your life, people will try to be there to celebrate you. But God is in that moment with you and he's saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were gonna name him after his father, Zachariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. It's funny. Who are they? Who are they? They that said you're too stupid. They that said you'll be a statistic. They that said you will be just like your father. They that said you will never amount to anything. They that said you gave that part of yourself away and you are second rate, second class, and you don't deserve at the seat of the table. Just settle for crumbs on the floor. Who are they? They don't have in mind the things of God. All they saw was the past. And God says, I'm about to do something new. How dare you label things according to the past? I'm about to do a new thing in you. It's a new thing. It won't look like the past. So don't use the labels of a previous generation. Zachariah, that's that name was good for who needed it. But the assignment on this child is different. Some of you have been labeled according to they. He is to be called John. But they didn't believe Elizabeth. And I love this in verse 62, because I think this is the second chance. I think Zachariah is getting another opportunity. Because the first time, all it was when the angel showed up to him was disbelief. How can I be sure of this? That was the last thing he said. He hadn't spoken in nine plus months. Verse 62, then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. He didn't even say it. He just wrote it. He just wrote, some of you need to write something down. God spoke something into your spirit that if you do not write it, you will forget it. Don't forfeit the revelation because you don't capture it. God is breathing something into your spirit right now. Would you capture it so that you don't forget it? The devil wants to snatch it from you. God says, no, write it down. I need you to be sure of it. His name is John. Immediately, whoo, his mouth was open, his tongue was set free, and he began to speak, 
praising God. The last time his mouth was open, poison was flowing out. Now it's all about praise. Now I'm going to be praising him. Now I'm going to be thanking him. Now I'm going to be worshiping him. I'm going to be praising God. You mean that mouth that's so familiar with disbelief can be switched over to speak praise? Yes. You can discipline your tongue. How do you discipline your tongue? By remaining faithful with the duty he's put in your hands. What's interesting about this story is everything has been pointing to Jesus. The Bible points to Jesus. John's life is pointing to Jesus. Zachariah at that time, the way that the, the law was written is when he was picked to go into this holy place, he would have only had the chance to do that once in his life. It was a once in a lifetime opportunity and he would never get that opportunity again. And some of you feel like that. You feel like you forfeited the opportunity, but Jesus, but Jesus, because John's life was pointing to Jesus. The scriptures are pointing to Jesus. You need to understand in the courtyard of the temple, when they would bring in these animal sacrifices, you realize that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundations. All of the temple was pointing to Jesus. Every part of it was pointing to him. His blood was offered for the forgiveness of sins. You realize that Jesus is in the holy place. He is the light of the world. You realize that he is the mediator, the one that gives us access to God. You realize that he is the bread of life. It is all pointing to Jesus. And then as Jesus is on the cross, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last breath. And as he did, the veil was torn, separating us from God. And he created a way for us to come into his presence. And he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Why would he say that? Because the father delighted in the son. And the son's duty was to be obedient for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. What's it gonna be, child of God? Are you gonna keep letting disappointment keep Jesus at a distance? Are you gonna keep labeling yourself according to your lowest moments? Are you gonna live in an outdated Old Testament sacrificial system that's all about you bludgeoning yourself and proving to God you're good enough? Or are you gonna receive the forgiveness that's found in Jesus? What's it gonna be, child of God? What's it gonna be, doing it your way or coming to Jesus? Stand up here at Ballantyne, all of our locations. And I wanna give somebody an invitation to place their faith in Jesus. You have been playing religion. You've been purposing to try harder and do better, but you are separated from God because of your sin. And I really wanna to speak to somebody who's living in the land of disappointment. That disappointment where it didn't happen on your timeline has made you feel like God has forgotten you. 
The evidence of the scripture would suggest that he's not forgotten you. He sees you, he hears you, and he's in this moment with you. And if you need to begin a relationship with Jesus, or you've wandered away and you need to come back to him, I wanna lead us all in a prayer right now for someone to begin that relationship, to profess that Jesus is Lord and be forgiven of all of your sins. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? And I want everybody praying this out loud with me. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the grave to forgive me of my sin. I give you my life. I give you my sin. I give you my shame. Forgive me, and I'll spend my life following you. With your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, if you just placed your faith in Jesus, or you're coming back to him. I'm gonna count to three. And when I get there, without hesitation, I need you to boldly shoot your hand into the air. This is your moment. One, two, three. Shoot your hand up all across this auditorium. Come on, let's celebrate that Elevation Church. Come on, let's celebrate that. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you did, make sure to share it and subscribe so we can get you all of these new messages as soon as they're available. I also want to take a moment and thank all of you who are a part of Elevation. Whether you support us financially or serve with us or just share these messages, it's because of you that we're able to reach people all around the world. And if you want more information on how to be a part of Elevation, click the link in the description. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to leave a review, share the message, and subscribe. God bless you.